I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What, what are you valued at currently? Uh, so during the Lauder deal, it was 2.2 billion. It's just a, a really horrible moment where I guess your hopes just got... Sorry, Laura, I don't want to cry this We've got breaking news right now. Brandon Truax at 40 years old. We have two sources now confirming that he died. Were, were you very close as co-founders? Unbelievably close. We would just spend probably about 70% of our time together. There were changes. This was a very enigmatic and troubled uh, CEO who was well known for some very outlandish social media posts. It kind of escalated and, you know, I'd been trying different things with Brandon and I was like, is everything okay? And then suddenly I was out of the business. And I remember crying pretty much for 24 hours because you know when you just have this feeling of like, something's, something's happened. Hey, hey, and welcome to Working Hard, Hardly Working, the podcast which is back and better than ever. This is our first episode of what would be our second season if we were going to be doing seasons, but we are not doing seasons. We will be with you every Monday, which is absolutely terrifying in terms of workload, but really exciting in terms of where I hope to kind of take this podcast. We have the most unbelievable guests. I've at this stage have recorded already four episodes of it. And before the podcast even launches, we're gonna have nine episodes done, dusted and ready to get out. They are with some of my favorite business leaders, thinkers, authors, creatives, artists, everything you could possibly imagine. And it's being curated to hopefully give you some amazing insight into really, really interesting people's lives in hopefully quite a transparent and accessible way. So today's episode, I'm particularly excited about. There's a reason that I wanted to start with Nicola before we'd even recorded this episode. This was the most transparent and beautiful and honest conversation about business, about mental health, about the tragic loss of her business partner, co-founder and co-CEO. I think you're going to learn a lot in this episode and I cannot wait for you to listen. I hope you're excited for the rest of the season that's not a season. It's just a podcast now. Nicola Kilner is the co-founder and CEO of Desiem, the abnormal beauty company, known for flouting beauty industry conventions and creating cult favorites in the process. She is also, much to my delight and surprise, one of my investors at Tala. As CEO of Desiem, she has navigated a billion dollar sale to Estee Lauder, hit Forbes 40 under 40 list and achieved nearly 500 million pounds in annual sales, but success can never be as simple and fluid as it seems. Nicola had a solid friendship with her co-founder Brandon Truax, having taken the risk leaving her full-time role in 2013 and vowing to inject passion and transparency into the beauty industry alongside him. However, in 2018, after spending five years building the brand together, Truax's mental health sadly began to spiral. There were erratic posts coming out of the company's Instagram account, press reports on drug abuse and the termination of C-suite employees' contracts. Sadly, in 2019, it was reported that Truax had tragically died and Nicola became the sole CEO of the company just weeks after giving birth to her first baby. Today, with one product being reported to be sold every second, I delve into Nicola's story of success, heartbreak, and phenomenal business growth. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Grace. I'm honestly, I'm so excited about this. There's so much we have to talk about from a founder's point of view, your journey and everything. And I know that people are going to find it very inspiring, very interesting. And I know that when I've met you before, you've been very honest and open. Um, and I've loved that about kind of how you shared your journey and everything. So it's an absolute honor to have you here today. For people who are kind of wanting to know more about your journey, your story and how you got here, could you give us like a three bullet point summary of your career? Yeah, <laughs> I went to university in Nottingham and Boots sponsored me. Uh, so I ended up being a beauty buyer at Boots 
which is how I met Brendan, who was with his previous company, Indeed Labs. I actually wanted to start my own business called BeautyWise. Brendan wanted to start Desiem. He was like, you help me, I'll help you. Left Boots to, to kind of start both of those things. And then that was nine years ago with with Desiem, and it's been a roller coaster of, of emotions, of a journey. And you know, now we have Estee Lauder companies as our majority parent. Uh, so yeah, lots of ownership and obviously lost Brandon along the way. Um, but yeah. That was so concise. <laughs> have you done that before? No, I felt like it was far more than three. <laughs> I've never been that concise in my life, even like talking about what I've had for breakfast. I have to go into I have to go into more than that. That's very impressive as a whole. And so you should probably add that to your CV. Um, so when you say that you were kind of sponsored by Boots to go through university, how did that work? How did you get that? What did that entail? So yeah, so at Nottingham Trent University, I actually have an amazing business um, degree. I, I think it still exists now. Um, and anyway, they took 40 students onto this program and then all the students would be sponsored by a blue chip company. So it was either Boots or Barclays, Rolls Royce. So I chose Boots because, you know, I had a passion for consumer goods and kind of health and beauty. So what it meant was my first year at university was the same like everyone's. And then year two and year three, we would effectively be working at Boots for like 12 weeks and you'd have a three week study block. So all of your lectures would be like condensed in, into all wow. the days. So during the year two and year three whilst everyone's partying and having the, the uni life you know we would all be working full-time at our companies come back for kind of the intense lectures and then we'd go back and you know all of our assignments dissertation etc we would be doing in the company we were in so it's actually amazing so like within those two years you know I had one placement in store you know worked across Boots International different departments and you know they're very generous giving you their leadership's time uh, so actually I felt like once I finished university you know I'd had this amazing amazing experience at Boots. I then decided to stay on at Boots because, mm. you know, I'd had such a good experience. Uh, so I actually feel very privileged that, you know, it was quite a unique course, uh, but I definitely got a lot out of it. That sounds, that sounds really cool. Are they still, do you, they still do that I'm pretty now? sure they're still doing it, yeah. Um, and, you know, the blue chip companies, they all paid our tuition fees. We mm. got kind of a, a, a you know, a, a small salary whilst we were there too, so. God, what a dream. Nice to come out of uni with no debt. Well, because the, so I did a pre-university placement at IBM and they do a, you can decide to continue that as a kind of sandwich course type thing where you're doing essentially an apprenticeship alongside their paying for your uni. And I remember them describing it at the time and being like, that sounds amazing, but also like incredibly stressful to be doing all of the different things at once. Do you think it, did it teach you a lot about the world of work and kind of discipline and all of those things? Yeah, learned so much. And actually, you know, I always think in your career, um, like you learn so much from kind of startups and entrepreneurship. But I also think there's a lot to learn from your early years, doing a couple of years in a big corporate, because you just learn around. And again, I mean, the workplace has completely changed against post-COVID, mm. but actually you just learn so much around actually how workplaces work. Things like, you know, large companies do well and then you also spot the things that they can't do well because yeah. they've just become so big and they've lost that agility. So I always think I'm conscious about Odysseum now that actually the big thing about the big companies, like they're so good at people development, like they have mm. so many courses, they have whole learning and development teams. Like, you know, they really do invest in your development, both professionally and I actually think personally too. So before we get into the kind of start of Desiem and, and when you decided to do that, would you say that kind of blue chip, more corporate background, would you recommend for people who want to kind of later on start a company that they start in that type of thing first? Yeah, I actually think it's a great learning experience, more probably so than going to university, you know, I, and I never knew whether to go to university or not, but I think the course we did actually just had that perfect blend of actually, it was only really one year pure student and then actually you got that education but you know, I think you know and even it's silly things like all the excel training courses you know just all of these things and again mm. you can go on google and youtube now and, and teach yourself but I actually think you just learn so many things about the, the way things work so you know if you want to go into consumer goods like if you can pick um, and actually I also think a retailer head office is also a great place mm. because ultimately when you work as a buyer, you know, you're trying to understand the consumer, you're understanding merchandising, you're understanding supply, you're negotiating, you're understanding like what is driving the consumer into to buy the product? Is it price? Is it promotion? Like how does that whole ecosystem work? 
Um, so yeah, I feel very fortunate that I think it was a great um, training. And you know, Boots itself, I think are a phenomenal employer. You know, they're very strong with everything they do for females. I think they're a company that really cares, you know, and I often think, you know, being based maybe up north, you know, people who work at Boots stay often stay for like 30 years, but mm. actually there's lots of wisdom within that too, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. So you wanted to start one company and Brandon wanted to start another company. Yeah. When did you meet and what were those companies that you kind of wanted to start? So I met Brandon when he was at his previous beauty business called Indeed Labs. And at that point I was the beauty buyer at Boots. So we, and um, I was buying and launching his products. So mm -hmm. we launched Nanoblur, we launched Noxin, we had some great success. And you know, I remember like my working relationship with Brandon, you know, I, I'd get an email from him. And you know, when it's like the first email you want to read in your inbox, because yeah. it was just always full of like, such a passionate energy you know he would always sign his emails off smiles Brandon like it was just full of warmth and just excitement for kind of what he was doing um, and I remember then the day when I, I got the email to say he'd left Indeed Labs which was quite kind of an abrupt exit mm -hmm. and I remember just being really sad because you're like oh like I'm not ready yeah, for that person that person really my made my work like, great yeah. Um, you know, I have to say, when when I was the, the buyer at Boots, I was working on more niche brands. So actually, I was lucky that I always got to meet interesting people because, you know, anyone who's kind of starting something, you know, is, is normally has an interesting story to share. So yeah, I just remember being really sad, but it also got to a point, you know, like growing up, I always loved watching Dragon's Den. I would ask for like the autobiographies of entrepreneurs on my Christmas list, etc. So always just been really passionate about business. But anyway, working in, in, in boots and in, in beauty, I often found that all of my friends and family would always be like, what's the best mascara? What's the best serum? Yeah. What's the best foundation? Um, and similarly to, you know, how if you want to go on holiday, you often look on TripAdvisor for reviews and actually like, what's the best hotel, the restaurant? And I thought, actually, nothing really exists like that for beauty. So I messaged Brandon and I was like, can we go for dinner? I want to kind of talk to you about something. So I told him my idea about kind of starting this website called BeautyWise. Um, and then he spoke to me about wanting to start Desian. So Desian's from the Latin word for the number 10. It was about building 10 brands at once. So and very really, small goals. Yeah. <laughs> And really just having this entire ecosystem in-house, you know, by this point, Brandon had had two previous beauty businesses and a software business before. So, wow. You know, and how old was he? Um, at that time, he'd have been in his early 30s, like 32, 33. Wow. And so, you know, he'd had three exits behind him, and um, you know, smaller on scale to Desium, but still very successful yeah. in, in their own right. So I think, you know, he had some means behind him and he'd kind of had lots of learnings. Um. So really the whole thing around Desium is to actually bring everything in-house, so to do our own manufacturing, have our own design team, have our own PR team, anything you could think of, we wouldn't outsource, we would do it in internally. And I think that was quite unique because ultimately it's, it's a hard decision for any entrepreneur to decide that. And you mm. have to have some capital behind you because it's expensive Absolutely. to set up a factory and you know people often use agencies because it's a, a good way to get talent. But actually it made such a huge difference because you know you're you're all in this bubble where like you know each other, you're an order comes in, like you would all go to the factory, like we would all, like Brandon and I would be making hand chemistry, we'd be like sealing the tubes. So it's such a unique spirit where actually, you know, the care and the love that I think happens from being in that environment is, is so strong. So anyway, backtrack a little bit. So Brandon was like, I'm starting Desium. I was like, I've got this idea for beauty wise. So he was, because he had this background in technology and coding, he was like, let me help you with yours and you come and, and join me and help Desium. So for the first couple of years, we were working on both. And, you know, beauty-wise, we, we started building all the architecture and kind of all of the design and everything. But then, you know, it started to show challenges because actually um, the rate of new products within beauty is very mm -hmm. fast. Very but actually, fast. you know, often it's change of names. It's new packaging. They have different names in different countries. So, you know, it's not like TripAdvisor where one hotel is yeah. that hotel. So then there was just lots of complications that started coming. And then at the same time, the Desium at this point, we'd launched the chemistry brand, we'd launched Fountain, we'd launched Inhibitive, Grow Gorgeous. And they were starting to kind of show really good signs of success. So, you know, like any entrepreneur, you just follow where the success is. So, of course. You know, we then kind of wound down beauty-wise and all of the focus went on to Desium. So in the first couple of years of Desium, Brandon had a non-compete on facial skincare right because of his previous mm -hmm. exit 
which was why every brand that we had to, to create was outside of facial skincare, which really was probably where Brandon's expertise was. But actually, again, you know, you have that kind of barrier, but it pushes you to actually innovate in other areas. Um, so we launched four different brands. Uh, Boots was a, you know, a great partner for us. We, we launched with them. And they all had, you know, relative success, you know, in, in, in different ways. Grow Gorgeous, we ended up selling to the Hut Group. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was part of, you know, raising money to kind of continue growing. And then some of the other brands actually just over time ended up winding down. You know, it's so hard to build a brand that can... I mean, I can't... <laughs> I struggle on the daily building two brands. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a big, you know, a big ask. Building 10 brands in one... I mean, it seems completely, like, insane. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems just like the, the wildest idea. And I, I can completely see, you know, high risk, high reward, big ideas, you know, yeah. result in big things. But even just that as a starting point, I think, I mean, I think it tells you a lot about Brandon as a person. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, the amount of ambition, the amount of excitement, the amount of passion and everything to be able to make those things come to life and not just say... I'm going to start this one brand, but I'm going to start 10 brands that cover all these different things. Did that terrify you at the beginning? It no, it was just excitement. Yeah. And I remember like, you know, so when I left Boots, you know, I'd have been like 23, uh, 24. And I remember my mum, you know, she's like, you've got a good job. You're in like a good company. Like who's Brandon? Like, why are you leaving it? Why are you taking this risk? But I don't know. It never felt like a risk. You know, when you just, your heart just tells you it's just the right thing to do. And, you know, just follow excitement, kind of follow where you, you think it wants to go. Um, and so what's interesting, so, you know, we launched the first four, then we had HIF, we had Abcrew, Abnormally, STEM, other brands came. And then when we could eventually launch facial skincare, we then launched two brands called Hylamide and then Neod. So actually the ordinary, which, you know, is the, the, the hugest part, biggest part of our business and obviously kind of a huge success story. Actually, it was the 11th brand we launched. Uh, so it was a good job we didn't stick it to. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, again, what was actually really good about this philosophy of trying multiple things is, you know, you can come up with an idea that you're so passionate about, you know, you really believe like this is the thing. But ultimately getting a group of consumers to also love what you've come up with is risky, you know, they might not all share your viewpoint. Mm. Um, so actually it was almost kind of like we kept doing things and, you know, they'd have different waves of success. And then suddenly the ordinary launched and the concept of the ordinary, we never designed it to be really like a, a brand in its own right. We launched it because Neod, which is our, you know, we call it skincare for the hyper-educated. It's really kind of high technology, kind of future thinking skincare. And we're all so proud of really what, like, the chemist, you know, brand and, like, everyone achieved with the formulas for Neod. It's truly, mm. like, next-generation phenomenal skincare. So we would get frustrated when we would see, you know, one of our Neod products on in a magazine next to another premium brand who were shouting about, like, a new vitamin C product and it's 80 yeah. pounds. Because we'd be like, oh, like, vitamin C is not an innovation. Like, that's not yeah, a new that product. that does not need to be 80 pounds. It should pounds. not be 80 pounds, like... How how is this, you know? And again, I, I hate I hate saying bad things about an industry because there's so many good things in the world of beauty. But it's kind of like there was no transparency, and even I could feel that as a consumer. And I guess it goes back to a little bit about the beauty wise concept that you know I could walk into a department store and you're like, whoa, like where do I start? Like yeah. what do I pick? And if you contrast that to healthcare, you know, if you have a headache, you'll walk into a pharmacy, you'll buy paracetamol or ibuprofen, and like. You know, you know, if you walk in and you want paracetamol, okay, you might see own brand for 50p and you might see a, you know, Nurofen version for £5, mm. but you would never see a version for £50 and £500 yeah. pounds because you know the ingredient you're buying, you know the milligram, kind of the doses you're buying. Brands, I guess, have less power in a way within healthcare because actually um, you have that trust. And, you know, the other comparison that I think is good to make is, you know, often when people see, you know, in the ordinary, uh, our lowest price point is £4. And people think, gosh, like, low price point can't work. Like, price point must mean efficacy. But, I mean, you'll buy a pack of paracetamol for 80p and know that actually it's, it's going to help with your headache. So, actually, yeah. price doesn't mean quality. Like, quality comes from different ways. So, actually, just how you would buy paracetamol, you know, ingredients like vitamin C and different acids and retinols, etc. These are ingredients that have been around for, like, 
decades mm. are so studied are so trusted and also are quite excessively priced to buy it as a brand from like manufacturers because many people can manufacture them there's no patents left on those ingredients anymore even the studies like everyone has studied these for years yeah. and like even claims etc so we basically launched the ordinary with the hope that consumers would say okay therefore this is the same as this other vitamin c thing so therefore the new products really must be that much better because i trust decium and actually if they're charging me six pounds for that but 60 pounds for that that must actually mean like it has got that different technology in but literally overnight the ordinary honestly just exploded and um I even think to today like we still haven't caught up with yeah. the demand that was generated so obviously the kind of concept for the ordinary then is one of those ideas that just completely blows the whole industry out the water it's one of those things where as a consumer you've been fine with an industry or often just think yeah that's a more effective product that's really expensive but ultimately I can't afford it so I'll, I'll mm. go for the you know the other ones that are either dupes or that work just as well or that kind of appeal to me more at my price point. The idea as a whole is just so disruptive and so well thought through and it's one of those things that when it's explained to you, it just makes so much sense. Did you feel like each of the brands that were started as part of Decium came from the same kind of light bulb disruptive moment or not? And do you kind of feel like that was the reason that The Ordinary kind of went the extra mile? So, so when I think about kind of the development process, I wouldn't say when we were talking about the ordinary that we felt like this, this is a light yeah. like as I said like we didn't think it was going to be like a big brand like we thought it would actually naively push Neod to actually be the bigger brand like you know we always felt like Neod would be our like kind of crown jewel and kind of really that hero brand for the portfolio. We actually did the first launch with Victoria Health a, a website in in the UK and I remember it just everything sold out literally within a day. And it was just phenomenal. Um, but again, you know, it, it made a lot of sense to us, but actually we had a couple of huge retail partners who we actually are with now, who at the, at the beginning, you know, the first kind of concept stage, we actually presented the ordinary to, and, and they didn't decide to list because mm. it was kind of like, consumers won't understand this. Yeah. You, know, you need to call things anti-aging serum and brightening serum and kind of use the, you know, the terms that consumers are used to. And I think it's quite hard, you know, and I know someone comes up with an idea, someone's like, well, if it was a good idea, you know, someone would have done it before. And it's just such a stupid phrase. And I think, you know, it is sometimes like you do something and people might be like, it doesn't make any sense. But mm. if you can take the risk and do it, like you should just try. It also feels like The Ordinary was so kind of ahead of its time, but also very much of its time. So like what I mean by that is the fact that Actually, probably 20 years ago, a product like that wouldn't have made sense on the market because people wouldn't have had the access to the information for it to make sense. So in a world of social media, you're able to kind of see a niacinamide, for example, and you're able to find out what that means and where you put that in your routine and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Whereas like before, if it was an ingredient in something that's giving you 10 different action points that makes sense to you. And I think that that's a really good point in terms of entrepreneurship as well is that, that Actually, no, people might not have done that great idea because six months ago it wasn't a good idea, but the world is changing at such a rapid rate at the moment in terms of everything from marketing to the way people consume to the way people look at products to the way people see straight through non-transparent marketing. There are constantly new good ideas that can always be pursued. And mm -hmm. I feel like you hit the nail on the head so well with that. And it was probably, you know, those retailers that decided not to list because actually maybe a few years before it, it wouldn't have made sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, social was a huge part and is a huge part of our success. And again, I think, you know, the, the way that we talk about ingredients and all the information out there, I actually think it gave people the chance to actually talk about skincare and ingredients on their own channels. Mm. Because again, if you think, you know, before kind of there was as much transparency about ingredients, you know, if you were using serum and it was just kind of some super serum or like, what would you say about that? Because mm. actually it's just got a descriptive name. Whereas actually suddenly people like I'm using niacin and my 10% plus zinc 1% I'm using, you know, this and then this and kind of building their whole like personalized routines. And actually that word of mouth and organic growth was just, you know, skincare is a hard category where people think skincare doesn't work. Like people have this kind of skepticism. Yeah. And probably because I think for a long time, maybe there were products that were kind of too high price point for actually the efficacy that they could deliver. 
Uh, so it's just been amazing that actually, you know, people try it, they kind of get recommended it by a person and then they really do see the results. Absolutely. And tell me about the early years of kind of starting Desiem and running the business and working out how a business worked. Mm -hmm. How was that for you and how did you kind of learn to be an entrepreneur? Do you know what? It was very fun. Yeah. Uh, that's like my kind of main memory of those first few years. You know, like it would always be traveling uh, and always with Brandon. And I think, you know, like when you, you're in kind of a startup or, or anything like that, like the people make it like because Absolutely, it's so yeah. intense. Like you're spending evenings together, weekends together, you're on flights, you're, and you know, like, and again, everyone's different but like for me like I lived and breathed it and we all did and actually like it was just such a good bubble to be in and yeah you know part of again of having multiple brands was to like if we were flying to Australia we could go and meet one retailer for one brand another retailer for another brand we could do a press event and kind of talk about all of them and um, but you know really like it was just doing whatever needed to be doing and you know Brendan always focused more on uh, the formulations and kind of um you know the manufacturing logistics um kind of finance that side of it and then I always had more focus on actually opening up the new markets working with retailers with partners um, and on that side but we we basically just spent all day every day talking working traveling and, and you know Brandon was always the person who'd be like let's go get ice cream let's go get fries let's go get a diet coke mm. and you know just always making sure there was fun along the way um and yeah you know like I can't even say it was hard. You know, I think we were fortunate in different level of success to where the ordinary became. But, you know, even in the first few years, like, we did have great results. Like, you know, we, you know, you have cash flow issues, but I don't think there was ever a point where we worried about mm. if it was going to make it or not. We never dreamt to the level that it became. But actually, it was an incredible journey. And, you know, we, uh, the team, you know, we're lucky now that actually we have so many people that were here from those first few years. And actually, like, they truly are friends for life. Like, their yeah. family, like, the bonds we have are phenomenal. And why do you think that was? Why do you think it was, I won't say easy, but why do you think it wasn't hard? It wasn't that kind of, I feel like a lot of entrepreneurship and a lot of that kind of startup culture is, you know, it's, it's problem solving. It's a lot of things coming up that are wrong. It's trying ideas that end up not working. Mm -hmm. I assume that was kind of part of the journey as well. Why do you think that it was able to be kind of smooth sailing from the beginning, from your words? I think, you know, we probably had a good mix of, like, positivity mm -hmm. and also calmness. Yeah. That, you know, things do go wrong. But, like, we're not saving lives. Like, yeah. things go wrong. Like, we find a solution, we fix it, we move on. Like, it's kind of just part of growing. But I think, you know, we were really lucky with the team we got. And again, like, you know, when you can't afford big salaries, like... You went, you know, everyone who basically joined us were graduates. Like, it was mm. kind of people straight from school, straight from uh, kind of college. And actually, but everyone had this just abundance of energy and they shared the dream, they shared the belief. And everyone, you know, was just working around the clock. And again, like, when I say, like, people would work in the factory for, like, 48 hours if we had to get an order out. Because, again, like, you know, if suddenly Boots were one of our first accounts, if they played a, placed a big PO, you say yes. And then you find a way to deliver it. And if that means that actually every single one of like designers, Brandon, myself, like everyone has to work in the factory, like we do it. You just have to do what needs to be done. And actually they're also the fun times because yeah. those are the times actually you remember like when else would I get a chance to work in a factory overnight, like sealing tubes. Like it's just part of, I think, what makes the culture for a startup. 100%. I think that some of the most stressful, but also most kind of, fun almost like team building to use like a very boring word for like what it is times have been the real crisis moments where we're all like oh my god like this is so stressful everyone's running around like an absolute headless chicken but that is the that's kind of what brings you together and that's your like if there's so much adrenaline there's so much excitement it's kind of you know that is the excitement that comes with the startup do you think that the, you know, the fact that Brandon had a few exits under his belt as well in terms of, you know, having founded companies before as well. Did you find that really kind of guided your journey? Yeah, and I think, you know, because he he was like a successful multi-entrepreneur, serial mm. entrepreneur. So I think, yeah, like it's kind of like whatever he touches will be successful. And, you know, Brandon, like not many people you meet in life, you can say like they truly are a genius. Like yeah. he really was that person. Like the way his brain worked was honestly just at this phenomenal level. Um, and he just had the energy, the commitment, like 
you know, he was someone when you were just around him, you just knew things would get done and, and be amazing. Yeah, that's really, it's really kind of lovely to hear about yours and um, Brandon's relationship. And, you know, in, in 2018, Brandon's mental health did mm. begin quite a kind of public decline. Um, before we get into the details of that and the kind of how that affected you and how that affected the business and everything, were, were you very close as co-founders? Unbelievably close, you know, and we would just spend probably about 70% of our time together. And, you know, whether it's traveling, whether it's just always on WhatsApp, phone. And again, like there's there's no nine till five Monday to Friday no. in, in that kind of world. Like you're living and breathing it in, in a way where like, you know, you want to. Um, but yeah, like he was one of the closest people in, in my life. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of what happened at this time? When did it start? And how did you kind of notice the issue starting? Um, so towards the end of 2017, there, there were changes and it was kind of just small things but like I don't know so when someone's personality just like you start to see a few differences and what's hard you know Brandon and, and again like you you go back and question like did I not know this person like kind of you know and, and, and there were things I didn't know that I've learned after but I still believe like I really knew him yeah. because actually like you you can't make up years of history together I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. But anyway, like he he was a very curious person. And anyway, he went to Amsterdam. He tried some magic mushrooms for the first time, and um, which, you know, were legal in Amsterdam. It was kind of a mm -hmm. creative exploration. And I think, you know, probably maybe one of the positives and, and negatives of Brendan's personality, you know, he was very curious. He was very passionate and would always push everything to an extreme whether he was going right. on a diet whatever it was it was like normal extreme and he was always on, on the extreme side and I think you know he wanted to go and explore kind of some stuff he'd been learning and then anyway it really happened overnight from from then that um it was it was January 2nd and I was um in Australia and I'd gone for like holiday over the Christmas period but then I had all meetings booked at the beginning of January And I remember him saying to me, like, you know, just go to the airport and get kind of the first flight to Toronto. Like, we need to have this, like, emergency meeting. We've, we've got to address things. And I remember crying pretty much for 24 hours on that plane because, you know, when you just have this feeling of, like, something's, something's happened and, like, I, I'm worried about kind of what, what the future is and actually kind of where things are going. And anyway, and you know, I'd, I'd only packed for like the summer in Australia, and then right. I land in Toronto, which is like minus 10 degrees, and I'm in sandals, and I'm like, right, okay, yeah. just need to go and buy a coat. Um, and anyway, then we, we have this day, and you know, Brandon talks about how he's not going to have a phone anymore, because actually like, we all just need to be more connected, and actually he's not going to go by time anymore, you know, if we say that we're going for coffee, we just both go for coffee, and like, we'll just align when we're there. So anyway, you know, you're hearing all of these things and you're feeling like, okay, things are a big change, but equally Brandon's a genius. There were lots of tears that day and there were, there were a few of us in, in the room, you know, people that had all been there from the beginning. And I remember ringing my husband after it and, you know, saying like, you know, maybe, maybe he has a point, like we are all addicted to our phones too yeah. much. Like, you know, he is someone that sees the future. He's a visionary. And you go through these kind of like, it's like, do I just need to like, change and, and move forward but anyway it became quite clear then you know over the next coming weeks that that things were escalating and again there was always this balance between you know something's kind of made sense in like a visionary way then there would be like really bad times and then there were you know like bad business decisions that were kind of made that you know had a, a hard impact on, on us and the team so then it got to February um where then like it kind of escalated and, you know, I'd been trying different things with Brenda. Then I was like, look, is everything okay? Yeah. And then as soon as I kind of started to like 
try and bring that up. And then again, it became even more difficult. So anyway, I left the business in, in the February. Then spoke to my husband, like we wanted to have a family. And again, just yeah. being so busy with work, it was like, okay, let's just try. And luckily got, got pregnant quickly in, in the March. I think what was really hard was everything was so public with Brendan. Yeah. You know, everything would be on Instagram. He would be sending emails to one the whole company, but then CCing in every journalist, influencers we worked with, buyers, retailers, you know, Estee Lauder, who actually in this journey, they, they'd just taken a minority investment um, in 2017. And I had to say, you know, everyone was incredibly supportive and I'll never forget, I think, the kindness that actually just everyone showed us really. And then it was in, in the June time where he asked me to go back. And again, it's a hard situation where, you know, I was just worried for him. I was worried for everyone, you know, in this time, like I'm talking to the team every day still. It's, mm. I'm not there, but I am there. So yeah. kind of making the decisions and kind of running things behind the scenes. And ultimately, like I wanted to help Brandon. So I, I go back in, in the beginning of July. And again, just became clear that actually things are, are kind of getting further away from being good. And what's really hard in that time as well, you know, he, he got, sectioned three times in the UK, in Toronto, in New York. I think there is so much progress that needs to be made in like the mental health systems because mm. none of them talk in other countries. And again, he'd, he'd go into one of the hospitals. So, you know, it was just a truly like tough year. And um, people were in and out of the business because anyone who questioned or kind of what I think kind of showed concern was pushed yeah. because, you know, it was difficult to address. And anyway, it kept escalating. And, and I have to say, Essay Lauder companies were like, you know, they, they truly are a family orientated company. And, you know, they still have Leonard Lauder, William Lauder, but actually just the care like Fabrizio that they all show mm. is second to none. And all through this process, you know, it was always like, how can we help you? Like, how can we help Brandon? Like, they lined up a plane in like the best facility, like let's get in private treatment. But ultimately the hard thing about mental health is you know, if you have cancer, you, you have a test and the mm. test result comes and it's a diagnosis. With mental health, it's much harder to diagnose. You yeah. know, it's, there's very few tests where it's like, okay, this is what it's you have and why. this is the treatment. And, and ultimately, someone who's suffering is difficult for them to understand or see and actually, like, accept treatment. So it's just a really horrible, helpless situation so things just kept escalating. And then in, in the October, um, things had kind of reached a height where Brendan had then shut down the entire company. And I mean, at this point, like, you've got shareholders, we've got yeah. like a thousand employees who've got livelihoods. From the them having had a minority stake, I can assume there were board meetings and there were things that needed to go through a board to be decided. In terms of things like him shutting down the company, mm. et cetera, et cetera. I, I know that there was a lot kind of very publicly on social media. So even if you can't go ahead with something, there's some things that, you know, quite clearly affect the company. How were these decisions like you being out of the company, et cetera, being made? Decisions should have gone through the board, but nothing was rational at that time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Brandon would just send the email and, and and then, you know, you're in a difficult situation. And you're yeah. like, okay, like, what do we do? And um, so, yeah, it got very difficult. So anyway, in the, in the end, in the October, um, through the board and the shareholders, the, um, I guess, court case happened, basically removed Brandon as, as CEO. Right. So he got removed from the company, which was, you know, the hope was it was just a temporary, it was, I became sole CEO on a temporary basis. And, you know, I think everyone just hoped two things one like we we have to help save decium like yeah there'll be no decium left and actually like there's so many like livelihoods and, and everything that's gone into decium but then also with brandon you know it's like we were we're kind of nine months into this journey ten months into this journey and things are getting worse not better mm -hmm. so actually you know everyone says like you have to wait for them to reach your rock bottom and, and then so then you think maybe like this will be rock bottom like maybe realizing that actually like he'll lose Decium too maybe that will be the kind of catalyst that actually he'll accept that he needs to get treatment so so the court case happened and, and it was granted for for him to be removed um and at this point I was like seven months pregnant yeah about to have kind of my first child so 
flew to Toronto, like got all the team together and brought back. So Stephen Kaplan, who was a CFO before, I like went for dinner with him and I was and he again had left during kind of this branding period. And I said like, please come back. Like we need you to help kind of run, uh, you know, that side with the business. And luckily he, he came back. Um, and then again, you know, from, from kind of October onwards, it continued to be, be difficult because, you know, we'd, we'd still be in communication with Brandon, which was, was never easy. We'd still be like trying to like find a way to get him help, kind of figure out where he was. Um, and just really like horrible just watching this, mm. this spiral. Um, so then I had my baby at the end of December. Um, and then I remember in January, sorry. I remember in the, in the January, um, Mila was three weeks old. I was breastfeeding her. I remember one of the me, sorry, one of the, the um, people in that comms team, we'd got a, an inquiry from a journalist that said, we've heard Brandon's died. Can you confirm? I remember just like, thinking like, it can't be true. Like, it just can't be. So I rang Stephen. He went to the, the police station in Toronto. <laughs> And they confirmed that he had passed mm. away. And at that point, like, no one knew. Like, we had to ring, like, tell the company, tell his best friends, tell his family. Like, it was just a really horrible moment where I guess your hopes just gone. And yeah. He was finally in peace, which is ultimately, like, knowing what happened that year. And I think just, I always used to worry, like, when he'd get better, like, because there was everything was on record, everything was on yeah. video, everything was on Instagram. It'd get taken down from Instagram, but now it's all over YouTube because kind of people are taking the content yeah. and sharing it elsewhere. And um, they're just like a really horrible situation. And then yeah, like, you know, Mila was I had to go to Toronto and see in January for like his funeral. She was like five weeks old. Yeah. And then again, just straight, I'd always put off having children because I wanted to be a very present mother and yeah. really be that and then having him sorry Laura, I don't want to cry this much but don't apologize do, do you want a break for a second yeah let me just yeah break. yeah I'm and so yeah so you know Mila was three weeks old and um, when I heard the news and it's just that you know and everyone says you have to wait for rock bottom then it'll get better and then you just it's just this horrible feeling that actually it, it ended in that way but then also you know this like having a three-week-old baby getting her passport we got to get to Toronto for the for the funeral to kind of see the company see everyone and again just you know, in Mila's first year of life, she went to Toronto 15 times. We went to, like, <laughs> Shanghai, Sydney, like, anywhere. Like, we mm. just had to kind of... Because, you know, the whole company, like, everyone was grieving. Everyone had been through so much. Um, that yeah, it was just a very busy first year of uh, be, being a mum. But actually, again, just I think the love and actually the bond and, you know, everyone who'd kind of stuck together and, and you know, many of the people who'd kind of left during that period everyone came back and you know mm -hmm. it was kind of just like I guess just building on everything and again like we were very fortunate kind of the support we got from the shareholders just from retailers like you know I think because Brandon was such a good person yeah everyone loved him everyone you know like we'd I pride ourselves on like everyone at Desium really are like kind people good people and I think from that we really have good relationships across everywhere and actually like there's so much value in those good relationships because then when times are tough like everyone stands by you and everyone you know wants you to succeed um so yeah so that was kind of beginning of 2019 um and then yeah and then towards the end of 2019 so then the the kind of acquisition conversations kind of start happening mm. which was always kind of part of the plan you know in in 2017 when when Lorda came in they were a minority but always kind of with a plan that actually yeah. That ELC would, would become kind of the, the future home. And I think it was, you know, I remember Brandon, the, the day we signed it in New York, he was just so happy that actually we'd found like a very family valued company that has a value, you know, a family of phenomenal prestige brands. Um, so yeah, we started all the, all the conversations and then, um, and then COVID happened and then, you know, suddenly you've got this whole pandemic, everything goes on pause. And again, I remember, you know, it was on, 
it towards the end of March and, you know, just being in this situation when you're like, gosh, like, we've just got everything, like, <laughs> yes. stable Give again. Give me a break. I was just pregnant with my second child. Like, right. we just got, you know, yeah. pregnant in, in, in January. We hadn't even told everyone yet when just the pandemic started. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, like, what now? Here we go again. <laughs> and actually for, for our business, you know, I think we're, we're in the group of kind of Netflix, Peloton, you know, they, those companies where when COVID hit, we just went like this. Um, which was just amazing but you know suddenly I think everyone was at home everyone was shopping skincare everyone was shopping online and you know we were very much quite like a digital brand uh, at that point so actually the business just you know went through this next stage of just phenomenal growth and um, and actually I have to say you know it is difficult to say good things come and obviously so many people have, have suffered and you know so many people lost their lives through through the pandemic but I definitely think the shift of kind of just the way we work is actually going to have you know, it's such a positive, like, I think when our children grow up, they'll be like, you used to, like, travel every day to an office, like, five yeah. days a week, like, that would just I mean, seems, people are even like that now, yeah, essentially, like that just saying, how, how do we uh, do this? That, that, that could ever happen, um, and, you know, again, actually feel lucky that, you know, then through, through kind of being pregnant with, with Luca, and actually really for, for a lot of his first year of life, actually, I didn't have to travel, like, everything mm. was just done on, on video calls, which was actually amazing and actually kind of just as a working mum like it made such a difference to like quality of life to like being present and you know actually the time difference with Toronto really helped being in the Mm. UK because actually a lot of the calls were at night when the kids were in bed like I'd get all the mornings with them and so yeah so we just kind of uh, had a very good time for the business during the pandemic Um, and then, you know, last year, SA Lauder Companies took the, the majority ownership. Um, and then, and then you know, the path is that they will take full ownership in the, another few years from now. And again, you know, we just now have a very strong, supportive relationship with them. They're kind of here to help us. I think, you know, as the business, we, we still very much have been feeling like indie startup but then suddenly we're on this scale where actually yeah. it's I mean, not anymore what, what are you valued at currently uh, so so during their law deal it was 2.2 billion us dollars so I, I would have to say not indie startup i'd push it to um, yeah <laughs> and actually you know part of that is recognizing you know areas where we have to bring different people in kind of you know it's it's the areas you want to kind of keep and then kind of the areas you want to you know push you know like I, I look now and I think you know we it's like we designed a very indie kind of yeah. direct to consumer kind of concept and then we kind of just put it into to, to retail and actually like you know we're, we're learning a lot but you know through like visual merchandising and actually yeah. you know I stand because I know the brand so well and I know our products but then I actually stand there with someone who's new to the brand and I like feel their confusion mm. because actually, like you say, if you haven't been on the internet and you haven't researched everything, you're like, you're looking at a pharmacy aisle with yeah. all of these ingredients, all of these percentages. So like now, you know, we're going through this, okay, actually like we have scaled up, but we haven't necessarily like done the different iterations of the brand. So actually if you're walking into Boots and you're new and, you know, maybe you've heard of the ordinary, but actually you don't know much yet about the ingredients or the products. Like how do we actually help you shoppers yeah. like... I think sometimes we can be too anti-sales and it's like right. half sometimes you know I'll be in store and I'll watch someone walk away from the stand because like I could just see the confusion and like actually we're not helping these people and um, so I think you know those are some of the developments now where again we're lucky to have SA Lauder companies as a partner because like they know this like they've they've scaled brands so actually there's lots that we can learn from them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the the whole journey of Desium as a whole, and your journey as a founder, um, and all that you shared with us is, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking a lot mm-hmm. of it. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful at how honest and open you've been. But I I also think it's such a brilliant story of how a great business idea that puts the consumer first can really champion um, in a really, really tough industry and an industry that's really held by big players. I Before we kind of go on to the transition of the brand from this kind of indie, indie startup to this huge mm. what, $2.2 billion um, dollar company now, um, that that first year of, um, of motherhood um, and of bringing a company back from an incredibly traumatic moment and loss, I can imagine that was 
incredibly hard for you. How did you manage being a new mum? I mean, being a new mum and having to go back to work so quickly on its own would be unbelievably difficult. Yeah. And I think an incredible support system. So, you know, I'd be in Toronto for probably like one week every three weeks, but my mum or my husband would come with me and, you know, they'd obviously take care of Mila, like they'd bring her in, I was breastfeeding, they'd bring her in for me to feed. And actually just, you know, incredible support system at home and then an incredible support system within the business. You know, mm. Stephen, um, who's actually re retiring in, in a couple of months, but, you know, he really took on so much. And I always remember like, I always have a guilt of, you know, like, I should be doing that or something. Mm. And he'd be like, you've got a baby. Like, my kids are all grown up. Like, yeah. I'm happy to work the weekends and the evenings to get all of this work done. Like, you go and enjoy being a mum and, like, just don't worry about this P&L or whatever it is. Just, like, let me take care of it. And that, honestly, like, was phenomenal. So I think just, you know, really surrounding yourself with the right people. And again, like, one of the people that were we're actually just brought into the business now is actually a general manager for the first time. Because, again, I recognise that, you know, I spend time on stuff where I'm like, I'm not the best person to mm. be doing this. Like, yeah. And again, you know, I think it's difficult when you've been in the company and you've been there from the beginning and you've kind of grown to be at the top. But I mean, I don't think I would ever get the job as a CEO of no, another like I mean, I definitely would Two billion <laughs> valued company, like 1,500 employees, mm. like, you know, hundreds of millions in revenues. Like, I would not get that job. So like, mm. you, you kind of have it, but you're like, yeah and then you know people say it's imposter syndrome and I'm like no it's not no no like, it's not no I really I know the things I can do but like this is not the things I can do <laughs> yeah and, and and also you know I want to spend more time with, with the children and I'm quite passionate about every every household's different but I do think within a household you know you often have like the primary caregiver and like, I want to be the primary caregiver like I yeah. want to be the mum who's kind of the, the thing and like it's very difficult like if you both are working like full-time like my husband's also got his own businesses like travels and has the, all the all the hours and um, that I really want to like eventually go part-time mm. and I feel like I've been saying this for like the last couple of years but again I think actually like creating senior roles that actually men or women can do part-time mm. because again like no I think the the working week when it was designed for someone to work Monday to Friday nine to five you know this was done in way back when where mm -hmm. actually someone was staying at home taking care of the children taking care of the house yet now like which is amazing like men women everyone like everyone's working but actually to have two people working all the time whilst trying to raise a young family like it's just so difficult and so I actually think like there's lots of progress to actually talk about you know like job shares and part-time and actually like you know if you're not bringing something value to something that someone else could do better than like you have too little time like just bring someone else in that can do it yeah. delegate it so actually you can spend the time where you want to in that year you said that you know you kind of went to Toronto 15 times all of these different places yeah. how was your how was your husband able to do that so he has his own business yeah he has his own business so my mum would probably come out two of the three trips and my husband mm -hmm. would do maybe one in in three um, and again, you know, the great thing about mobile phones, like ultimately you can yeah. work anywhere and, mm -hmm. and actually time zones can often work to your advantage where actually you can now be working in the evenings, uh, you can be working early mornings. So yeah, we, we just found a way to get through it. Like you just... You must have an incredibly strong relationship. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that as a whole, the, the newborn, everything must have just been... Was there a point that kind of, a f you know, we're now a few years on from that that you were able to take a sigh of relief and just be like, oh, we're through that? Or do you feel like you're still going through that I every day? I think so, because mm. then I got pregnant with my second, then the pandemic hit. Yeah. So it's just been like a constant, like I actually feel so, because we're bringing in a general manager now to kind of help with, with much more of the running of the business. So now I'm in the kind of busy time, you know, when you welcome someone to the business, right. it takes the more takes, time yeah. because you're kind of doing all of these things. But I kind of keep have this thing that I'm like, by September, like, I'm going to hopefully have more time to, like, focus on the things that I love doing, the things that I think I bring value to, like, around our people, our vision, like, sharing our story, like, talking to people, and um, more time for the kids, and mm. then, you know, hand over a little bit more of the, and what I call the boring side of the business. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I think I'll, I'll check in with you in September and make sure you're... <laughs> yeah out the door doing things that um, aren't more work and more work um, and more responsibility. Um, but as a whole then, how how are you aiming to build a company that is able to 
is able to be inclusive of people who, for example, as you say, want to be in leadership positions but have young children. Mm. I've got this quote saved somewhere on my phone, but it says, I'm actually going to find the quote. Gentle reminder that the 40-hour work week is outdated and was designed with the assumption someone else was going to be always taking care of cooking, cleaning, and household errands, obviously adding into that caregiving. It wasn't designed for you to be doing it all, and if you're having a hard time, you're not a failure. And I'd save that. But then also thinking, about how, do I, how do I design a company that bears that in mind? Because also, you know, it's very different. I, I try and make it quite clear online a lot of the time that when I'm saying, you know, these are my hours and this is what I'm doing today, I also try and make it clear, I've, I've got a cleaner, I've got a dog walker, I have teams, like I've mm. got an assistant, all of these different things that we're able to see this whole thing online of, you know, you've got the same 24 hours as X, Y, and Z, but actually the, the differentiation of kind of, okay, but this person has teams, this person has all of this. Mm. How do you build a company every day that that acknowledges that and accommodates that? And um, So one thing at the bottom of all of our emails, we all have a little disclaimer. And mine is, you know, I have got two young children. I work across multiple time zones. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what time you receive this email it's not urgent. Like you respond to me when it's the right time for you because it's something I'm always conscious about that, you know, like you send an email when it is your time and maybe the kids have gone to bed and I'm sending it late in the mm. evening because like that's convenient to me, but I never want anyone to feel the pressure of, okay, I've got to respond. And again, maybe someone else it's also convenient for because maybe they have something else on in the morning and I want to do it in the evening. So I think encouraging that flexibility, but, and I actually don't have the answer to, to what I'm going to say next, but I actually had a really good conversation with our VP of People, Ashley, um, who's based in Toronto, about how actually like the the new kind of hybrid, you know, work from home, come into the office for a couple of days, potentially could have like a challenge on women in the workplace because mm-hmm. we're actually men are more excited about going back to the workplace than women. And actually, you know, I think a lot of companies are doing, you know, hybrid come in for like two or three days, but there were a lot of men who from the study, like are planning to go back five days a week because actually, you know, maybe they do have kind of more help at home, etc. That actually then like if we've got to make sure it doesn't mean that like women and mums are put far further behind because actually they are only coming in two days mm-hmm. a week because the other days, you know, they want to pick up the children from school. Like they're making it work. That actually like I feel like gender equality in the workplace is something that we have made so much progress on that I actually think it's a really critical time to make sure that we don't step backwards. And and making sure then that we can put things in place that have both flexibility, but also acknowledging that actually you're completely right. If it is men then that are more excited and more, you know, a generalisation, but based on the kind of statistics, then are more excited to be going back to this workplace, the risk as well that it will once again become this kind of like old boys club yeah. where if you're in the office and you are a woman or you you might have a child, you might be a woman just kind of making it up their career, just that difficulty of then fitting in once again and we so can't, 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 can't yeah. go back to where we were before. And again, you know, we've had a conversation around like, you know, do we, do we do a policy where actually like there's a limit of the amount of days you can come into the office so actually you have to work from home or remotely like three days a week and then on the flip side of that you know I know some some of our our team are like in house shares and actually like they want to come yeah so it's just like this minefield you know I'm I feel fortunate at Desium you know we we truly I would like to think you know there's always things people can do better but like we really celebrate everyone mm. and kind of make a fair fair workplace. But I definitely think for those um, industries that have been more male-dominated, it's a really critical point where actually, like, they need to protect the workplace to make sure that actually we don't take steps backward. No, absolutely. And I think one of the, one of the biggest things as a founder and as a CEO is that is constantly treading those lines between making sure that it's somewhere a fantastic place to work and also an effective business in lots of ways so you know understanding productivity understanding the way people do things we you know we had a culture session recently you can see over there that people on the wall we talked about the company culture and we had likes and dislikes and everyone anonymously put up their post-it notes to kind of say what they liked about working here what they didn't like about working here and then also suggestions and there was you know at the same time certain people really want more flexibility so at the moment we have pretty much a loosely most people come in Tuesday to Thursday Monday Friday very much optional and you know if you need to stay home and get a delivery whatever absolutely Mm -hmm. fine you're not you're not going to get in trouble but at the same time then people wanted 
the office to be able to be louder and more collaborative and not feel like they're interrupting people's calls and all of that. We have an open plan space. Mm. So, you know, that comes with its own issues as well. Um, and being able to get both flexibility and collaboration in one mm. thing, it's how do we make sure we can balance both those things? Because actually a lot of the time they're in direct contradiction to each other. And I find that from, you know, as someone who's newly trying to build a company in that actually exists in person rather than just online. We built a huge amount of the company kind of through the pandemic and being remote is how do you balance those things and how do you give people what they want in terms of maybe having core hours between 10 and four and, you know, more flexibility versus a four day work week and all of these things, whilst also making sure the company needs to be doing well for all of us to have jobs in the first place. So it's that, it's that line between them. How do you know when those things are kind of right decisions in terms of policy and culture um, versus things that are maybe just like buzzwords that you can you kind of want to give people but that don't necessarily mm. work for anyone you see I think you you know you create policies and, and you do things to support culture but ultimately like you just have to listen to people mm -hmm. and, and observe like are people happy or people staying with you and um, you know we do like open forums where kind of people can can speak and you know I think I've always been quite open with our entire team about like you know my well my door but you know especially my virtual door my email like it's always open and actually I get a lot of whether it's someone in production or retail or kind of one of our teams anywhere like every week I'm hearing from multiple people and I think actually that relationship is so important that actually people know that you know if you've got suggestions if you've got things that we can be doing better like just come and talk to us about it mm. because you may think we've decided against something when actually we may have just not realized that actually it's having that impact so I do think communication is really key absolutely and being now you know having a student having a majority yeah. shareholder how does that affect things like the culture and how do you see that continuing to affect things if for example you know you go ahead with the plan for them to have a full takeover so you know it's interesting in the last year I think where we probably have changed I think we would have changed regardless Mm -hmm. of, of the ownership and you know I'm quite I always try to kind of make it quite clear with the team that actually like you know as examples like we've never had budget before like we've always just kind of I mean we've had a rough forecast da, da, da. but obviously now we have like those processes which yeah. are partly because we're part of like you know a, a bigger public company but I'm like but we also need those because you know we're increasing yeah, we make decisions. And payroll yeah. and like all of these things based on like the numbers we think we can do so, like, there's things where, you know, I always try to be really careful because I'm like, actually, we're just a much bigger company now and mm. we probably were too late, I think, on, on kind of some of the bigger things that we need, needed to bring in. So, you know, like, we are kind of transitioning and, you know, we want to keep elements of kind of the agility and kind of the passion and, and everything that was so, what is so great about Desiem. But then you also have to, like, grow up and mature in, in other areas. So I think... Where we have changed, like, I don't think it's because of being part of ELC. I think it's changes we would need to make anyway, just with the, the scale of the business now. Absolutely. And th are there any changes that you kind of introduced as part of that, whether um, because of, you know, ELC or whether it, it kind of being the company growing as a whole? Are there any that you've kind of gone through and then thought, actually, this isn't right for us? We're, we're different. Um, I mean, I guess kind of one area. So, I mean, um, with ELC, they're, they're phenomenal at the data that they have. Mm -hmm. And that data can be incredibly useful and insightful for, for places. But then you also kind of have to kind of also take a viewpoint of, you know, if someone looked at kind of insights and data, they would probably tell us, you know, maybe we are like missing gaps in cleansers, we're missing gaps in moisturizers, we're missing in these areas. But then the other side of that is like, we're so strong in serums, like serums and kind of those very potent treatments, like that's our like hero. So like... Mm. I think kind of learning to actually listen to kind of data and insights, but then always putting our own spin on it and actually how do we digest that to use it? Because otherwise data will always tell you this is what everyone else is doing. So therefore this is your gaps. Or actually, therefore you'll just make your brand like everyone else's brand. So actually you can listen to the same data, but instead of saying, okay, those are the gaps if we want to be like everyone else. You can be like, actually, this is our strength. Like, how do yeah. we keep that being our strength? Yeah, that, I think that's really interesting. And I think that a lot of the time, you know, when you look at the companies that have done above and beyond everything else, it is that innovation. It's not, 
It's not being able to do what everyone else is doing really well. It's being able to do something entirely different or taking a different approach to it or any of these different things. And I think that, you know, that's one of the parts of entrepreneurship that is also kind of frustrating because you're like, yes, I get that. <laughs> and, yeah. and how do I do that? How do we continually innovate? How do we um, make sure that we always are kind of thinking of things differently when also, you know, as someone who's taken investment within the past year, of which you were one of our investors, um, but kind of as part of that, you introduce things to be able to report, to be able to track, to be able to make sure that you're kind of that are the done thing. It's also hard as part of that to work out which are the done thing because they're a good thing to do and will work for our company and which are the done thing. But actually, like, we've tried this for a bit now and we just don't yeah. think it fits. And I think having that agility, like, you know, I think the ordinary was the 11th brand for Destinium to launch. Like, we just kept going. Like, yeah. even when we had some success, like, we were never complacent. Like, we kept innovating, kept kind of trying to push things further. And looking back at the journey so far and where you're kind of going now and what, what the company looks like, is there is there anything that you would have done differently? I don't think so, you know, like the journey has been incredible. And even, you know, when anything bad happens, like I'm always a believer in not having regrets because you learn from mm. everything and even anything that happens. And, um, you know, the one thing that I definitely want to devote more time to is understanding mental health mm -hmm. and really understanding like, when you spot those early signs, like how, what are the ways of prevention? And when someone is ill and they, they can't see it themselves because they're suffering, like how can we take steps to help that person? Uh, because, you know, it's worrying. Like I think, gosh, like if I ever like, you know, became mentally unwell but couldn't recognize it in myself, but then no one else would have any power. Like unless it gets really bad and then you get sectioned and that's not for long and then you're like it just something's not working in that system mm -hmm. and I think it just is something I'd like to understand a lot more yeah absolutely and in terms of anyone who's listening who wants to start a big idea like you and Brandon did and kind of really go for it and say you know fuck the rule book we're gonna do it this yeah. way what would but what would be your kind of main piece of advice to them just go for it. The wilder the idea, I think the better it is. Um, but I think just have the confidence to try it. And you know, I do think again in, in the world today, especially if it's consumer goods, the fact that you can set up a website, you can go on Shopify, you can set up a social channel. Like, I think we really are a privileged generation where actually like we have mm. different tools available where I actually think the, the world is ready for us just to, to innovate and create. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you have you, been Chris. incredibly open and honest, and I think so many people will appreciate the transparency you've brought with you today um, and you've been able to share with us. Um, I feel very lucky to have been able to speak with you and very lucky to have you as an investor. Thank you so much. Thank you, Grace. Yeah, everything you're doing is amazing. Keep thank on going. You.